Well, it's good to have you here, and uh, we are, if this is new to you, we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and I think, I, if I remember right, we're about, so we're about 20 months, I think, 20 months into Luke, we're in chapter 18, and um, if it's getting old to you, then the good news is we have less than a year to go, not, not exactly sure, but I think we're going to, I think we're going to be done sometime around May, that's my, that's my guess, so it's the countdown, we're on the final year tour here of uh, Luke, and we're actually, if you heard last week, um, and Mike taught, did a great job, let us know, actually, it's a, the way Luke's laid out, it's kind of interesting, but we're down to uh, a week before Jesus enters Jerusalem and, and uh, goes to the cross. Um, interesting, isn't it, that we're about a week away in the Gospel of Luke, but it's going to take us about, I don't know, nine months to actually get through it. So there's a lot in there to unpack. Uh, we are in chapter 18, starting at verse 35. Um, and it, it, as I was studying through this this week, it kind of reminded me, you know, there's some things in life uh, that we have to deal with that we cannot fix ourselves. And sometimes it's a little eye-opening, isn't it? When you come across finally something, because when you're, when you're in high school, when you're in college, you're kind of invincible, right? And then you get a little bit older and you start to come up against things that you can't fix. And uh, in fact, I'm really reminded of that this week. Back in the beginning of November, of last year, I, I took a bit of a spill, and um, in the process, I uh, apparently did some damage to my left shoulder, and, and so it, it didn't happen all at once. I, I started to wake up in the morning, and I'd have a lot of pain in my shoulder, and at first, I was like, oh, well, this doesn't feel good, but you know, I mean, I'm a guy, and I'm tough, and I'll just, I'll just, sheer force of will, I'll make the pain go away. So I tried that in November, and that didn't work. December didn't work, and it kind of was getting worse. And finally, January came around. I knew I was going with some um, people from Gateway to Nicaragua, and there'd be some physical labor, so I thought I should get it taken care of. So I went to my doctor, because I kind of came to this point where I'm like, I don't think I can fix this on my own. Went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you know, let's try some physical therapy. So tried some physical therapy in January and February, and that didn't work, didn't, didn't help. Um, so went back to the doctor, and they said, we'll have to do something else. And so in the meantime, went to Nicaragua, um, and um, I was a little bit apprehensive about that. Actually, I'll tell you this, you know, God's just always there for you when you step out for him. And so went to Nicaragua with a lot of pain, but it was great. I had an awesome experience. God saw me through it. No problem at all. Got back, um, decided to do an injection. So we did the inject doctors like, yeah, I think this is going to do it. We'll give me an injection. It'll be good. That didn't work. And uh, so then we went to the MRI. And anyways, all that to say, kind of through this process. It's been long. It's been 10 months. It's been uncomfortable at times. There was um, times back in, I think it was about January, February, when I would preach. Uh, my left shoulder would be in so much pain, and I could never quite figure out what to do with my arm. So I started preaching with my hand. So you probably didn't notice I preached with my hand in my pocket, because at least I wouldn't move it around. And it felt awkward, but I thought it might look distinguished. I don't know. Just like, <laughs> if I had a pipe, maybe that would have, you know, completed the ensemble. But it's a really uncomfortable time, but on Friday, um, they're going to go in and, and open it up and dig in there, and I think they're going to adjust the manifold gasket and a few other things, and then, um, and they think that I'll make a full recovery, be 100%. Actually, that's what they said, but I think they meant 100% of 55, which is kind of different, but anyways, um, so that's going to happen this Friday. I'll be out for just a little bit, and then uh, diving back in and looking forward to that as we continue through 
the Gospel of Luke. But uh, sometimes in life, you know, we come across stuff like this that uh, we just, we can't fix, we need help. And then sometimes, and this has happened I'm sure to some of you, where we come across stuff that's even more serious that maybe even a doctor can't fix. Uh, I know for some of you, you've been dealing with health issues that, uh, that you cannot solve on your own, can't fix, you need someone to help you. And sometimes in life, there isn't a doctor or anyone who can help us. Sometimes in life, it's a relational issue, right? Have you ever been in a situation where there's, a, a rela- there's, a, there's an issue and you, you wish you could fix it, you wanna fix it, but you can't? You can't do it in your own power? Maybe it's a financial situation, a vocational situation, some kind of conflict. And while it's difficult, and while it's uncomfortable for us to go through those things, I'm just telling you it can also be really good for us. In fact, it can even be better for us when everything is going well because those times remind us, don't they, that the big things in life, the most important things in life, are things that we could never fix on our own. You and I are not capable of solving our sin problem, and that is the biggest issue that we face in life. We cannot deal with the death issue. We're all headed towards physical death. None of us on our own can solve that problem. None of us can take care of salvation on our own. It causes us to turn to God, to turn to the one, to the sovereign, to the almighty, the omnipotent, the omniscient, who knows us and loves us and cares for us, the one who can help us, And so these difficult times in life can be good for us. Today we're going to look at a story of a man who is blind. And this man has a problem that that he cannot fix on his own. And not only can he not fix it, but apparently there's no one around him who could help him either. Luke chapter 18, verse 35 is where we're going to pick up the text today. And it says this, as Jesus drew near to Jericho, there was a blind man. It's going to be our focus today. There was a blind man and he was sitting by the roadside and he was begging. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father God, I pray for us this morning. I pray that you would uh, open up our, our eyes. I pray that you would help us to hear your voice this morning as we look at, at your word. I pray that you will speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. So here we have this man. And this guy's got a big problem. He's, he's blind. I know it's very difficult for us because we can take eyesight for granted, can't we? I mean, how many of you woke up this morning, opened up your eyes, and were like, hallelujah, right? I can see the ceiling. Right? We don't usually do that, right? We're just like, oh, you know, we don't even think about it. But here's a man who's living in darkness. We don't know if he was born this way. We don't know if it happened at some point in his life. But here's a man who cannot see. Now, in, in, in that part of the, uh, of the world in that culture in that time, there was, there's not a lot of help for you or hope for you if you were, you were blind. There's no cultural safety net for you. There's no disability for you. You were, you were on your own. And so usually if you were blind like this, it meant that you couldn't work. And if you couldn't work, then it meant that, you know, you couldn't buy food. It often meant that you didn't have a place to live. And so if, if this was you and you had no money and you had no residence, then usually you would you would beg. You would beg on a street corner and you would, you would depend on the grace and mercy of other people. I mean, your livelihood would literally be up to other people and whether or not they would give to you. This man cannot see. 
And he knew that there was no hope for him apart from a miracle. And so he's begging. The fact that he's begging tells us that he's unemployed, that he's poor, that he's destitute, that he's, he's an outcast. Now at the same time, Jesus is passing through this, this town where this man lives. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. Now, I don't know how you feel about this, but I often think, especially during this last week of Jesus' life, like if, if you knew what was ahead for you, if you knew that in a week you were going to be arrested and rejected and tortured and crucified, what kind of mood would you be in? <laughs> what kind of, what would your focus be? I love the fact that Jesus just thinking about the people around him. Right now it's Passover season, which is a momentous Jewish holiday and event. And it's a feast and there's worship and, and Jews would make their journey from all over to go to Jerusalem. And they would travel usually by foot. And it would be a long journey for some people. And so as, as they would get closer to Jerusalem, the, the streets would get more and more crowded. Uh, the towns at night would become more crowded as people were looking for places to sleep at night. And the store shelves would become empty. And, and so people are, are traveling along and they're moving. A whole population of Jews is moving towards Jerusalem. And Jesus is on this pilgrimage as well. In verse 36, and, and hearing a crowd going by, this, this blind man inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is, is passing by. So now there, there are probably many beggars on this road. It's a strategic place because people are passing through and, and they're religious people and they're on their way to worship a God who instructs them to be generous and gracious to the poor. It would, it would kind of be like if, if people gathered in our parking lot, if we had beggars that would you know, kind of be out by the, the entrance and by the front doors on the weekend because they knew that Christians are coming into the building, right, and we're supposed to be generous and worship God, and, and, and we would probably want to give to them. It would be a strategic place to be, and so there's probably many, many beggars on this road. So this man who's blind is there, and apparently um, Jesus is making his way down the road. There, there's a large group of people with him, and it, maybe it's, I kind of picture it like the road parade you know it's like um, you know there's there's people lining the street and then some people are maybe a few rows back and they can't really see what's going on and and so this is this blind man this beggar he's he's several rows back and um, he can hear this crowd but he he knows there's something unusual going on though he doesn't quite know what it is now there would have been a large crowd because Jesus is traveling we know with his 12 disciples, plus many times he had another 70 with him. And this takes place a short time after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And, and so many people are hearing about Jesus. Uh, a lot of people want to meet him. They want to they hear him teach. And so they're, they're coming down the road and the blind man has probably heard a lot about Jesus because he's well known at this point. And maybe the blind man has heard some first person accounts about Jesus teaching or his miracles or feeding thousands of people. And so he hears that Jesus is coming down the road and it's this great opportunity for him. He's, he sees this opportunity, but Jesus is passing by. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, in verse 38, it says this. It says that he cried out. So he yells out literally at the top of his lungs. And this is what he yells. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he yells this out. He's several rows back as Jesus is walking down the road with the crowd. And he yells this out and says that those who were in front of him, they, they turned around and rebuked him. And they told him to be silent. Right now, what would you do if you were blind 
And your only hope for ever having sight was passing by in front of you. Several rows up and you yelled and people told you to be quiet. Right? Well, you probably do what this guy did. It says he yelled all the louder. He cried all the more. He yelled out, son of David, have mercy on me. So he cries out to Jesus because it's his only option. He can't, he can't press through the crowd. He doesn't know how to get there. He's blind. And people are telling him to be quiet. But he knows this is, a, this is his one shot, his one opportunity. So what does he yell out? This is very intriguing. He yells out, he yells out, Jesus, son of David. Now that's a very significant theological statement that he's making about Jesus. In just a few words, he's saying a lot. Now, you probably realize that at this point in, in Israel's history, the, the Jews are, uh, they have been conquered by the Romans. Um, we might refer to it as an occupation, though it was a little bit more than that. So the, the Romans allowed the Jews to, to kind of continue to live where they were living when they were conquered, but now they don't really have any rights. They're, they're being oppressed, they're mistreated, they're heavily taxed by a government that's using that money to continue to oppress them and to abuse them. They're, they're looked down on. And so when this blind man shouts out, son of David, It's a loaded, kind of a dangerous statement. What he's saying for everyone around who heard him, they knew what he was saying is, there's somebody even more important than Caesar, which by the way, uh, you could get in a lot of trouble for saying that back then, but he yells out basically, there's somebody more important, there's somebody that has more power and authority than even Caesar, and that would be the son of David. Now this son of David concept goes back uh, And throughout biblical history, God made covenants with his people. A covenant is just an agreement that God makes with his people. And one of those covenants is what we call the Davidic covenant. Uh, God made a covenant with his people through King David. And you know, David started out as a poor, kind of rural shepherd who God raised up to be a mighty king. And in 2 Samuel, we read about this covenant that God made with Israel through through David. Starting in verse 8, it says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. So now, when God said these words to David, Israel had a territory, so obviously God is is talking about something something more than that, uh, something something deeper than that. A lot of people might have heard this and thought, oh, he's just talking about the physical nation of Israel, but God was talking about something something bigger than the physical nation of Israel. He's talking about a spiritual Israel, if you will, a spiritual people that he was going to raise up and give a place in this world. He said, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed uh, no more. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So speaking to David, he says, I'm gonna make a dynasty out of you, and, and not, just a, not just a physical house, not just a temple. He says, I'm gonna make something more than that out of you, something that will last. He tells David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. In other words, somebody who's part of his family tree. And I will establish his kingdom, and, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Notice, and this is important, of his kingdom forever. 
So that would be different than David's kingdom and that would be different than his son's kingdom, Solomon's, or anyone who would come after him because this kingdom would be forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure again forever before me and your, your throne will be established forever. Now, David was Israel's best king. Under David, Israel found peace and protection and prosperity, but David was far from perfect as, as a king. He was a sinner. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And when he died, his, his rule and his reign came to an end. But God told him, there will come a day when I will raise up from your family line another king. And it will not just be another king. It will not be like a, a small K king. It will be like a capital K king. This will be the king. It will be the king of kings. It will be the Lord of lords. And this king will bring peace and prosperity and the presence of God. In fact, he will be God's presence among his people. He will be God in the flesh. Years later, during this time of Jesus, the Jews referred to this coming king, this Messiah. They would call him son of David. And sometimes they would just call him David. So the blind man is proclaiming something very, very important here. He's saying that Jesus is the son of David. He's pointing to Jesus and saying, the person that God has promised to us, the one who would redeem us, who would be our king, who would be our Lord. He's saying he's right there. He's walking down the road right now. At this point, the disciples do not get any of this. If you heard last week, you might have heard uh, Mike talk a little bit about that. The disciples who've been following Jesus for three years, they don't get this. They don't understand who he is. But a blind beggar on the side of the road gets it, shouts it out. I just think that's so amazing. And I want you to notice a progression here. The first we have faith, and then we have sight. But first we have, first we have faith. In verse 40, and Jesus stopped and he com commanded him to be brought to him. So I love the picture here. Jesus is, is walking down the road surrounded by hundreds of people and there's crowds of people on the street and somehow Jesus hears one blind beggar rose back who's shouting out his name and Jesus stops. You know, I kind of picture that. Stops and he looks around and says, Peter, did, did you hear someone call my name? And Peter's like, Jesus, everyone's calling your name. No, 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 no. I heard somebody in particular. Jesus knows who it is. And, and so he says, bring him to me. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, of course, Jesus knows exactly what he wants, but he wants to give this man a chance to, to say it, to voice it. And he said, Lord, I want to see again. I want to recover my sight. Let me ask you a question. If, if Jesus was to meet with you today and he was to ask you, what do you want? I mean, what do you really want from me right now? What would you ask him for? What would that be? This man says, Lord, I, I, I want my sight. And Jesus said to him, great then. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And so Jesus does a miracle. And we believe that Jesus did literal miracles and that he still does them today but they're called miracles because they're unusual uh, they're uncommon and there were many blind beggars i'm sure on that road that day but this is the only guy who gets healed and jesus says to him recover your sight and i love this idea jesus is standing face to face with this blind man 
And Jesus says, recover your sight. And what's the first thing that this blind man sees? He sees the face of Jesus, which I love. In 1 Corinthians 13, it promises believers that one day, one day we will see Jesus face to face. Like just, just think about that for a minute. Imagine what that will be like for you when you breathe your last breath on this earth and you open your eyes and you're looking face to face with Jesus. Imagine what that will do to your, your doubts, your perspective on the difficult things in life. Imagine what will happen to your questions. Imagine how that will change absolutely everything. What an amazing day that will be. And I love the fact that the first thing this guy got to see was the face of Jesus. How amazing is that? And Jesus says to him, he says, your faith has made you well. Now this is not some kind of generic faith in faith that heals him. The, the key here is the object of his faith. The object of his faith is Jesus. It was not technically his faith that healed him. It was his faith in Jesus. It was Jesus who healed him. It is Jesus who saves us. It's been said that a saving faith actually is, is, is three things. First of all, it's truth. So a saving faith is based in truth, the truth about Jesus, and this is so important. So it's not just faith in faith. It's a faith in the person of Jesus. What do I mean by that? I, what I mean is this, that we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. That when Jesus came to this earth, in fact, he had already existed for eternity past. That Jesus was the agent of creation. That Jesus is the one who thought you up and designed you and created you and created the universe. That when he came to this earth, he was born of a virgin. That he lived a sinless life. That when he went to the cross, he took your place and mine. He made atonement for our sin. He did for us what none of us could do for ourselves on that cross. And when he died and when he shed his blood, and when he rose again on the third day, that when we place our faith in the work that Christ did for us, that we are forgiven of our sin. It's not our faith that saves us, it's Jesus that saves us when we place our trust in him. A saving faith is based in the person of Christ, but it's not just knowing about Christ, it's not just knowing the truth, it's believing in the truth. It's trusting in that truth. So not only do we know that Jesus was God and that he died for us, that he's our savior, but we, we trust in that. We, we, we believe in that. And the third thing is this, that when we truly believe in Christ, it always begins to produce an external action. Internal faith always produces external action. So for instance, what this means is that we believe what God says. So in God's word, when it says that God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, it doesn't say that God causes all things, but it says that God works all things. He bends all things. He, he massages all things so that they will, will work out for our good. So when you have faith in Christ, it means that you believe the things that the word says. So when, 
we're going through a difficult circumstance or when it doesn't feel like everything's working for the good, it believes that we still live in light of that fact because we have a conviction that God is going to work this even though we don't understand it. So we walk by faith, not by sight. It means that when we make decisions, even when life is tough and life is hard and we wonder where is God, we still through faith make decisions based on the word of God. Because when we have faith in God, it always produces external action. And notice what comes first for this man. What comes first, is it faith or sight? It's faith. First he believes and then he sees. Faith precedes sight. And there's a spiritual application here because you have to trust before you see. You have to trust in Christ before it all makes sense. Sometimes I'll talk with people, we'll be talking about Christ, I'll be sharing Christ, they don't know Christ, and, and there'll come a point and they'll say, well, you know, as soon as God answers all my questions, you know, as soon as I understand it all, then I'll believe in Jesus. But you understand, apart from Christ, there is no sight. First comes faith, and then comes sight, and then comes understanding. And here's the other thing we see from this passage, and that is this, that spiritual sight produces real tangible change in our lives. So let's notice this in verse 43. It says, and immediately this man recovered his sight. That's his physical sight. And he followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. I love this verse because there's so much in here for us. This man experiences two miracles, if you will. He receives a, a physical miracle where his, his physical eyes are now able to see, but he receives a spiritual miracle as well, and that is he sees Jesus for who he is, and he believes in him. And the result is this, that his internal faith produces external action. Here, three things in particular. The first is this, it produces worship in this man, right? So he begins to glorify God. To glorify God simply means he begins to point people to God, he begins to talk about God, and to talk about what God has done for him, to lift up the name of God in front of the situation, in front of the people that he's around. He's praising God, that is he's thanking God for what he's done, he's celebrating God. His, his eyes now see Jesus for who he is. His heart responds and his body engages and it's a supernatural thing. True worship is a supernatural thing. You can't just produce it in yourself. Passionate, authentic worship is something that God does in us. My question for you is this. Would you say that you have a reason to worship God like this man who was once blind and now sees? As you worship this morning, would you have described that as being passionate, as being authentic? You see, for those of us who know Christ, we have every reason to worship God as this man. It's easy to look at a guy like this and say, well, that, yeah, that's amazing, he was blind. But now he sees, no wonder he was glorifying God. But I say, I would tell you, if you stopped and thought about it, you would realize that every one of us in this room have as much reason to praise God and worship him as this man did. And so the first thing we see is it produces this genuine, authentic worship in this man. The second thing it produces in this man is a, is a witness. So the crowd hears him proclaiming Jesus, and they get to see the man get healed, they, they hear him worshiping God, and the result is this man is pointing people to Jesus. 
He's, he's kind of, if you will, he's bragging about Jesus and how great he is. He's like, I mean, here's Jesus and here's what Jesus has done and here's what I believe about him. And, and his story is very simple. His story is just this. I was blind, I was helpless, I was poor, I was a beggar, and now I see. Jesus came along, Jesus gave me spiritual sight, which led to physical sight, and now I've been changed. You see, if you believe in Jesus, your story is basically the same. You were blind, right? You were a beggar. You were helpless. Jesus came along, gave you faith, right? We, theologians have wrestled for a couple thousand years. How does this happen? How is it that God gives us faith? Well, I don't really know the answer to that. I'm just glad that he does, I'm just glad that he gives us faith. I'm just glad that he, he reaches down despite all the things that we've done, despite all the ways that we've rejected him, despite all the ways that we've walked away from him, he still comes after us, grabs us by the shoulder, turns us around, looks us in the eye and says, you're blind, but now you're going to see, and he does that. I don't understand it, but I'm glad that he does it. But that's our story, that's your story. You were blind, but now you see. That'd make a great song, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, but that's our story. And I know the details can be a little different, right? Like I was raised in a Christian family and went to church, but I was blind and now I see. Or I was, you know, I was rebellious and I turned away from God and did all sorts of stuff. I was blind, but now I see. Or I had a nice childhood, but I was blind. You know, I was, I was rich, but I was blind. I was poor, but I was blind. I was loved, but I was blind. I was rejected, but I was blind. And then Jesus came along. I don't know, Jesus came along and somehow, some way he did it. He, he opened my eyes. Somehow he gave me faith. I don't know how he did it. I don't know why he did it. I'm just glad he did it. I'm just thankful he did it. Someday I'll get to heaven and I'll ask him and he'll explain it to me. But for now, I'm just happy that he did it. Folks, here's the point. You have a story. You have a story, don't hide your story. You may think my story's not that exciting. Well, I don't know if you could see it from God's point of view, you might think differently. Your story is amazing. Your story is a miracle. Don't hide it. Share it with people. Tell them what God has done for you. And here's the third thing. So this, this faith produces worship and a witness and a walk. That's the third thing. This man immediately starts following Jesus. And that's the simplest analogy we find to following Christ, right? Just follow him, just, just walk with him. The New Testament talks about just walk in the spirit, just step by step. First you find Jesus, you trust Jesus, and then you follow him. You just go where he goes, you go where he leads, you, you say what he said, you do what he did, you follow him. Now, the Gospel of Mark tells a story and we think it's the same story that we're looking at here in Luke chapter 18. One of the differences in that story in Mark 10 is that Mark tells us the name of the man in the story, and his name was Bartimaeus. And church historians have a lot to say about Bartimaeus. Now, you won't find this in Scripture. This is what we would call extra-biblical, um, so we're not going to stake our faith on this. But historians tell us that Bartimaeus was legendary, that here's a man who receives a sight and he could have done, you know, I mean, he could have written a book and gone on a, you know, tour and, you know, been on the Oprah show and made lots of money and write all this stuff. But what does this guy do? It says he just, he starts following Jesus. Like right at that moment, you know, he, he can see, he's like awesome. And then he looks at Jesus and says, so, you know, where are we going? 
And Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, man. It's going to be ugly. And Bart's like, yeah, let's go, right? Let's do it. So historians say that he follows Jesus to Jerusalem, that he's there during the trials, that he's, he, he follows Jesus to the cross. He, he watches Jesus crucified. Can you imagine that? Like basically in the period of a week, he meets Jesus for the, it's the first thing that he sees. And a week later, he's watching. Can you imagine this? He's watching the person who, who brought him back to life, who gave him sight, and he's looking at Jesus up on a cross in anguish, and he's dying on that cross. And Jesus is looking down on Bartimaeus and saying, you know, giving you physical sight was cool, but what I'm about to do is even better. Historians say that when Jesus was crucified and taken down off the cross, that Bartimaeus followed them, followed him to the tomb, that he camped out for a couple nights at the tomb, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was there and got to see him, and that Bartimaeus spent the rest of his life just traveling around and telling his story. I was blind, I met Jesus, now I see. I was blind, now I see. I was blind, hey, have I told you my story? I was blind, now I see. And that's a Christian. That's a Christian. Someone who meets Jesus. Someone who gets sight. Someone who gets changed. Someone who begins to worship and witness and walk with Jesus. That's a Christian in a nutshell. But the problem, the problem is that we live in a world that is spiritually blind. You notice that? (laughs) We live in a spiritually blind world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So that kind of explains a lot, doesn't it? Have you ever looked around, have you ever watched the news? Have you ever looked around at the world and think, what are these people thinking? (laughs) How can they not see? Well, it's because they're blind. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Think about how we take that for granted. Think about the fact that God, through his Holy Spirit, has opened our eyes to see the light of Christ. When was the last time that you were just amazed at that? Isn't it funny how we can go from being blind to being spiritually alive, and a few years later we just kind of take it for granted? All the while we live in a world that is blind. Unbelievers are spiritually blind. So this is important for us to remember as believers, right? Debating them won't necessarily help them. Yelling at them won't help them. Hating them, mocking them, you know, looking at them and saying, how can you not see that there is a creator? How can you not tell that this world has design? How are you, have you ever talked with a believer and just thought, I just, how can they not see the truth of the gospel? They can't see it because they're blind. That's what sin does. Sin is like blindness. And like this man, sin is an, it's, it brings an incurable condition. Right? The man in this story, the blind man, he could, not, he could not help himself. That was us. We needed Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Sin blinds us so we, we don't see God clearly. I mean, I was thinking back, if you had asked me when I was 15 years old before I came to Christ, if you were to ask me, what do you think about Jesus? I would have said, I, I don't know, I have no idea. Do you think he's God? I don't know. Do you think he worked miracles? I don't know. You know do you think he's coming back? I'd, I'd tell you, I don't know because I was blind. I didn't know. I, I couldn't see. It blinds us to seeing God clearly and it blinds us to seeing ourselves clearly. 
That's why you have people walking in this world and they're living in sin and they're making bad decisions and you'll say to them, can't you see the road you're going down? Can't you under? And they'll say no because they're blind. They can't see it. So what can we do as believers? What do we do? Well, first of all, beware of thinking that the people around you are beyond hope. Right? Remember that once you were a blind beggar and God saved you. And if God can save you, God can save anyone. True? So don't give up. Remember, it was Jesus who found you. It was Jesus who opened your spiritual eyes and saved you. So I would say pray. Pray persistently. Pray expectantly. Pray faithfully. I don't know about you, but my fear is that for the church at large, this does not describe us. It's an amazing thing because scripture tells us again and again and again and again to pray, 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 pray consistently, pray expectantly, pray faithfully. And my fear is that we just don't do that. We just don't pray that way. So pray persistently, expectantly, faithfully. Ask God to open the eyes of the blind around you. And do these three things. Live a life of worship. Don't stay silent about Jesus. I know that it's, it's easy to come to church and it's easy to sing when everyone's singing and it's easy to raise a hand when everyone's raising their hands. That's easy. But how often are you intimidated when you go outside of these walls, when you're at home, when you're at work, when you're at school, to tone down the worship? Don't do that. Don't do that. Live a life of worship, not just here, but everywhere you go. Be an authentic witness. Share your story. Don't be quiet. Don't downplay. Don't think, well, God can never use this. You don't know what God can do with your story. And keep walking no matter what. Keep trusting. Keep, keep following. Because Jesus is still giving sight to the blind. I mean, imagine this for a minute. Imagine if everyone in this church Everyone who comes on Saturday night, everyone who came today, everyone who comes on a non-holiday weekend, imagine for a church our size, in a community our size, imagine this for a minute. If everyone walked out of this church today and last night and we decided that we are going to live passionate lives of, of worship and be a witness and walk each moment with God. If all of us walked out into this community and into our homes and into our schools and into our government places and into our workplaces, if we decided, not just some of us and not just the pastors or not just the, but every single one of us with a church our size and a community our size, how God could use that to turn our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces upside down with the light of the gospel. And I believe that God wants to do that. But will we follow him out of these walls into that place? Uh, about a week and a half ago, um, my wife and I took our youngest, our daughter, to Phoenix. And uh, our goal was basically to get her moved in to where she's going to college for the next couple of years. And uh, that was quite an experience. Uh, it makes me really glad I live in the Northwest um, and not in Phoenix. Uh, but, you know, we got down there and so it was a couple days of, of moving her into the dorm and spending some time with her roommates and all that. And, and uh, so on 
Thursday morning, it was our, kind of our last chance to see her, and we had to catch a flight out at one o'clock. Well, at least we were hoping to. We didn't, but that was our plan. And, um, and so we told Abby, we'll come by in the morning, and, and uh, we'll take you out for some coffee. And, so, and we knew. We knew, like, this is it. Now, we're not going to see her for a while. We're going to go home and walk by her bedroom, and she isn't going to be there, and that's going to be all kind of crazy. So there's a lot of emotion attached to that, that morning. So we took a deep breath. We went to the school. We picked her up to go out to Starbucks and just spent some time talking. And, and, uh, and then she had to make one last run to Sonic and get some tots. So, you know, we loaded her up with tots for school. <laughs> and we're taking her, we're driving back to the school. And um, so the school's located in downtown Phoenix, and it's not a great part of town, which is safe to say with Phoenix. And, um, and, but there's, uh, it's kind of all hemmed in. There's, there's um, you know, there's a fence all the way around the school. It's it's a large school, and there's, a, there's roads coming in, but there's like a guard tower, and you have to get past the guard tower to get in, so they have a lot of security. And people were still moving into school um, in the morning, and so I knew there was no way I was going to be able to just drive on campus and drive right up to her dorm, and I didn't want to stop at a parking lot because they were a long way away from the dorm, so I thought there's a road that's just kind of off the main road that goes, her, her dorm's just a few you know, buildings in, so I thought I'll just pull in there by the guard gate, and sh- we could say goodbye, and she'll walk to her dorm. So we driving up, and we get up to the guard gate, and as I'm going to pull over, I can see a sign that says no parking, right? And so I kind of think about it, and I'm like, you know, whatever, I'm pulling over. So I pulled over. I asked forgiveness first, and then I pulled over <clears throat> because this was, all right, so this is it, and everyone's quiet, and it's just all really awkward, and I pull over, and I can see my rearview mirror. There's a guard in the tower about 100 yards away, and he sees me, and he's kind of staring at me, and I'm like, yeah, you know, okay, so I'll make this quick. So Abby gets out of the car, and I get out of the car, and I give her a hug, and there's just tears, and my, and my wife gets out, and I'm like, you know, better make it quick, and I get in the car, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and the guard starts walking. He leaves his tower, and he's walking towards the car. He's got about 100 yards to go, but he's, he's moving pretty good, and I can see him in the rearview mirror getting closer and closer, and he's doing this and glaring, and then he gets kind of close, and he sees my wife, and he sees my daughter, and he sees the tears and the hugging and the don't want to let go. And he knows apparently he's seen this more than once. And apparently he tried to intervene more than once and I'm guessing it didn't go well. So he stopped and he turned around and went back to the guard tower. <laughs> and so they were hugging and finally it was, you know, it's got to kind of go. My wife gets in the car and, you know, I look in the rearview mirror and I see my daughter walking away towards the dorm and I'm not, not going to see her for a while. And there's just, you know, tears. And as I'm watching her walk away, I was just reminded of this. I, God reminded me that we believe that he has put her there for a purpose. Part of it is her education. But part of it is because I believe that she has a mission there, that God is going to use her to be a light there, that God is going to use her to be to have an impact on her roommates, um, in her school, in, in the community, that God is going to use her. I, I, as I saw her walking away, I reminded myself, my daughter's on mission. She's on a mission. And you know, when you're on a mission, it's just a little bit easier, isn't it? To go, well, I'll see her at Thanksgiving, but in the meantime, she's on a mission so I can support her. I can watch her walking away as hard as that is. Here's what I want to tell you. The exact same thing is true of you. God has placed you right here because you are on mission. God has put you in your home with a mission, in your neighborhood with a mission. Where you work, where you go to school, where you shop, 
Everywhere that you go, God has placed you in those relationships and you are on a mission. God wants to use you. There are people who are spiritually blind and they need to know Christ. And God is inviting us to get involved in that work. God wants to use us in that process of reaching people. And how exciting is it? Have you ever watched somebody who goes from blindness to sight? And how exciting that is? Have you ever watched them get baptized? Have you ever watched them begin to walk with Christ? God invites us to be a part of that. Folks, that's my prayer for us as a church, that we would take that mission seriously as we go from this place, that we will go today on mission. Amen, church? Let's pray.